Hey everybody, welcome to the Taming the Shrew podcast. My name is Josh Borkowski. I'm a paramedic and one of the EMS educators here with the University of Cincinnati's Division of EMS. And I'm joined today by Dr. Tim Smith. He's the uh, cardiovascular intensive care unit uh, director and also an interventional cardiologist here at UC. Uh, he's going to join us today to talk about uh, some uh, STEMI topics. So thanks for being with us, Dr. Smith. Hey, thanks, Josh. My pleasure. Uh, so first thing uh, we want to talk about today is, is uh, in addition to your involvement here at UC, obviously you're uh, heavily involved with the uh, American Heart Association's uh, Mission Lifeline STEMI Accelerator Program that's uh, been brought to the region here within the past year. So uh, why don't you tell us about that and, and your involvement with it? Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. This is a huge, huge undertaking for the region of, uh, of Hamilton County and, 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 and Cincinnati. Uh, this has been around from the American Heart Association for a number of years, and honestly, there's no uh, no other city the size of Cincinnati in this country that hasn't taken on a, a regionalization process for their ST elevation myocardial infarction. So for us to have the opportunity to bring a grant here and to organize this in a, in a collaborative fashion with the other hospitals in the region, it's just a huge ordeal for us. Excellent. And uh, I, I think most of the EMS providers in the region uh, are pretty familiar with uh, STEMI recognition and the importance of pre-hospital 12-lead acquisition and early cath lab activation, and those are concepts that have been hammered home for the past, oh, probably 10 years, if not more. So what will the EMS provider notice that's different then uh, with this program coming to the region? Well, first I'll just say uh, congratulations to the CFD and the EMS providers for, for really being on top of this uh, way, way before we brought regionalization here. I think they've done a great job with taking a, kind of a lead on the ACGs in the field and trying to get those submitted. I think what you're going to see in the coming months and years as we enhance our program and sort of set in place uh, best practice standards is really the acceptance of those EMS phone calls and, and, and EM, EKG transmissions to, to really trigger the, the STEMI uh, cascade, if you will, and, and allow us to have better overall overall uh, outcomes with, with improved device times. Excellent. And it's really a cool program. I mean, obviously, we, we talked about it a little bit before we started recording the uh, meeting to kick this off uh, back in the fall down at the, at the hotel downtown, and uh, we were just uh, both at a meeting this morning we were uh, really excited about, and the folks that uh, from Duke were up at both uh, both of those sessions and uh, helping us get this uh, get this going. So it's really a cool thing to to have all the collaboration from all the different. If you're not familiar with the Cincinnati area, there's a lot of different hospital systems and many, many, many EMS agencies in this area. And to get everybody collaborating and, and on the same page, this is pretty exciting. I agree. It's just a huge step in the right direction for our city and our region. One of the things that, and I don't think this is terribly, terribly new, but it's certainly different from the first time that um, the, the idea of 12-lead uh, acquisition and, and uh, the importance of the cath lab came about is when we first started talking about this, we heard a lot about door-to-balloon time uh, in the hospital, and that was uh, kind of the benchmark that everybody was tracking. And now what we're looking at is first medical contact to, to balloon time, which is a, a subtle difference, but an important difference. So talk about that and the role that the EMS provider plays there. It is subtle, but certainly more than just semantics. If you look at the older data and the older uh, sort of uh, interpretation, it was from the initial time the patient got to the hospital to the time we opened the artery in the cath lab, almost in some ways not recognizing the amount of ischemic burden or time that the patient was in the field, and certainly not recognizing the, the, the input collaboration and care of our EMS providers. So uh, a number of years ago, we have sort of washed away this terminology of door-to-balloon time and began to use a, a little more appropriate terminology, which is first, first medical contact, and that will be from the time that they're seen in the field by the EMS provider. The device time will remain the same uh, to the time we actually open the artery in the cath lab, and I think that drives home a couple of points as you point out. It says, A, we are a team. It's a, it's a, a continuum of care from the time the EMS folks pick up all the way to the time we open the artery in the, in, in the cath lab. 
uh, that's a continuum of care that really really stresses the importance of time and, and that means that if they can get that uh, first medical contact to device time under 90 minutes it's it's the optimal situation that seems to be where as we drive that time down we see better and better outcomes and survival for these patients yeah and I think the data aspect of this and just for me personally is a really exciting part I mean it's kind of as I've said this is not some of these concepts are, aren't unfamiliar to a lot of people in the region, but uh, we've kind of been going about it. Of, okay, we think we're doing it well. These are the benchmarks we want to hit. Uh, now we're going to have a whole bunch of data to say, okay, we are we really are doing it well, and here's some ways we can do it even better. And that's uh, just really exciting for me as an EMS provider. It's a huge deal. I think as we begin to measure this data, we can then improve our, our outcomes and improve our times, improve our system. Oh, if you can't measure it, you just can't improve it. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the practical aspects from a, from an EMS provider standpoint. I mean, obviously the importance uh, is acquisition of a 12-lead ECG in the pre-hospital setting. So just kind of start from there. You know, what kind of patients are we looking for? I mean, obviously I think everybody knows the typical crushing substernal chest pain. They're going to get a 12-lead EKG. In general, what other types of patients, some of those atypical uh, complaints should we be looking for? Uh, to obtain that uh, that that reading on it's a great question. I think it still uh, kind of echoes that the leading cause of death in this country remains cardiovascular disease. There are certain populations, such as females and minorities, who just don't have the classic textbook pain. So maybe it is right chest pain, and maybe it's abdominal pain, maybe it's shoulder pain, maybe it's just dyspnea. But I think once you begin to enter a risk factor category of say 30, 35 years of age, where you're having anything above the waist hurt or feel discomfort, then you must uh, sort of trigger yourself to do an ECG to make sure you're not missing something underlying. Uh, I think as you point out, uh, not only are STEMIs uh, killing people, but but ultimately uh, the, the number of non-ST elevation MIs will increase as the population ages as well. So if someone is hot, uh, you know, it may not show up on the EKG as an ST elevation MI, but there's certainly patterns that can be recognized as sort of processes that can be uh, adjusted at the level of the hospital. So that, that pre-hospital ECG is just critical for us to help help manage that patient. Awesome. And I do kind of want to get into those non-STEMI patients a little bit here at the end, but uh, not jump too far ahead. Let's just uh, talk about the STEMI patients. So the bread sure. and butter, sure. uh, ST elevation, you know, the, the, the machine's interpretive algorithm is screaming at you. Uh, acute MI suspected. What actually defines that? What are what are providers looking for? We're looking for classically the the millimeter of ST elevation, just to keep things very simple, and two contiguous leads, and and, and that would be something like two, three, and F for an inferior MI, one and L for a lateral MI, and right. sort of the classic B one, two, three, and four for the anterior MI. We want to keep this as simple as possible, and then ultimately in the right patient setting or the right clinical setting, we want to ask ourselves if the machine's calling an acute ST elevation MI why would it not be that? Uh, and if it is that, then we should make that phone call ahead or transmit that ECG ahead and say, hey, we've got a guy with the STEMI come in. Can we can we trigger the system? And I, I think another point to reinforce, and I've heard uh, Dr. Bill Hinckley with AirCare make this point on the podcast a couple of different times in the last couple of years, is with these STEMI patients, there's a tendency that sometimes we kind of let our guard down because a lot of these STEMI patients, probably the majority of them are going to be fairly stable. Um, it's going to be a transport to the hospital. We get them to the cath lab, the arteries opened up, everybody high fives, and it's a story that we all want to tell. Uh, but we need to understand that these patients are at risk for developing arrhythmias, developing cardiogenic shocks, uh, that you really need to avoid that complacency and, uh, and keep your guard up and really monitor these patients. So, so talk about that and then, and then other management aspects. What things are you looking for from the EMS provider? To, once they recognize that STEMI, what do they need to do? I think the biggest thing they can do is, is rapid movement. You know, it's once you begin to get the recognition of what's going on, it literally can be moments, as you said, until someone drifts into cardiogenic shock from a huge inferior MI, perhaps pulmonary edema from from a shock state, or even arrhythmias that can be fatal, such as VFib. 
So I think once we begin to recognize what's going on, the phone call to say, hey, we're coming in, the guy, the guy can certainly turn hot anytime, and we have a process in place to, to work with that. Uh, as far as the actual squad goes, vigilance at all times is key. So just because they look stable one moment means they could be stable throughout the ride, or they certainly could turn away south in the future, i.e. even heart block could show up. So these are the things that we really have to watch out for and be attentive to as they transport in. Excellent. And, you know, the classic uh, treatments haven't really changed a whole lot. You know, we want to establish IV access, you know, administer aspirin. That's probably the most important drug in the uh, the algorithm from the pre-hospital standpoint or the drug that shows most benefit on uh, those STEMI patients. Um, you know, nitroglycerin or fentanyl to manage their pain or, or maybe morphine or something along those lines, although I think fentanyl's kind of showing a little bit more favor recently and, and oxygen if they need it, but only if they need it, if, they're, if their SATs are below 94%. So those are, your, are kind of our typical uh, uh, management regimen for those for, for our STEMI patients. It is, which as you point out can be a little bit tricky. Most of the data points exactly to what you said. The aspirin seems to be the most uh, valuable medicine in our catalog for, for the price it costs certainly and for the sure. uh, experience of onset. Ultimately the oxygen is dependent on the patient's uh, saturation and respiratory status, but then the tricky part of this is they look good for a second and suddenly they can dive south and that changes things quite a bit. So you always have to be prepared for that and that would include transq pads or, or availability to shock, you know, things that you just don't always think about in a guy who looks pretty good and then suddenly doesn't. That's an excellent point of you know considering putting the pads on or uh, you know being ready because as, as we all know uh, as well the data shows you know once they develop those arrhythmias or shock or whatever the, yes. the sooner the management occurs whether it be a defibrillation or, or what have you um, the better the patient outcome is going to be so we're on the topic of STEMI but we know that MI is not the only uh, cause of ST segment elevation on the ECG so that kind of falls into the category of what uh, is referred to as STEMI mimics and that can trip some people up sometimes so there, there's a little bit of uh, I I think concern on the part of the EMS providers of well, what if I call this in as a STEMI and it, and it ends up not being one or I asked to activate the cath lab and they don't have a blockage that uh, it's one of these STEMI mimics how do we handle that and I think that's part of one of the things that this program is trying to uh, regionalize and get everybody on the same page is that we understand there's going to be some uh, some over triage with these patients because obviously you want to catch every single patient that actually is having a STEMI so to do that you're going to end up with some that uh, that maybe aren't that end up in the cath lab so talk about that and what sort of the acceptable rate is with those patients. I, I would agree with everything you just said, Josh. I think one of the things that we talk about is sort of uh, what happens when they call and it's not real. Well, my response to that is you shake their hand and say thank you because it shows initiative and it shows you're trying to do what's best for the patient. Ultimately, sometimes what's happening is so complex beyond the level of just an MI, it requires a little more investigation. That's something we can take care of at the hospital level, but, but at the end of the day, if it's a pulmonary embolus or an aortic dissection or some type of mimicking uh, a thrombus, uh, in, in the coronaries or on the valve, that's things we can work out as we get here. It still doesn't change the expedience of which we need to do things. So I think to your point, yeah, as you raise sensitivity up to 99.5% or 100%, you're going to increase your positive uh, predictive value uh, in the opposite direction. And that's okay uh, because we don't want to miss these patients. It's critical for survival that they, that they have good uh, good kind of early medical contact at device times. And I, I think just from an EMS provider or just any clinical provider standpoint, I mean, you, you always pay attention to your patient. I mean, the EKG is an excellent diagnostic tool and that uh, STEMI is a great thing to recognize, but you, know, you always pay attention to the patient's symptoms and the story that they're presenting. And as you said, even if they tell the right story and they have pain or they just kind of look sick or just you kind of get that gestalt to say something's not right with this patient, 
and you call it a STEMI, but it ends up not being a STEMI, they're probably sick with something and need that rapid intervention. So even if they don't end up getting what they need in the cath lab, they need something, and, and, need and something. you're making the right call uh, with that with the uh, ex expeditious transport. I agree, and oftentimes there can be subtleties on the ECG, such as a posterior infarct or a lateral infarct that just may not show up to the same magnitude that something like a big anterior MI would show up. And that was kind of that leads into my next question. So we talked about some of those, those non-STEMI patients or some of the maybe subtle STEMIs that uh, don't trip, trip the uh, computer algorithm, but uh, they are there. You know, as you said, a, a culprit lesion is a culprit lesion. If that yes. artery is blocked, it doesn't matter what the ECG shows, that patient needs uh, needs attention. So, and I don't want to get into all the criteria for different STEMI equivalents and, and things to look for, because that's a topic of, uh, of an entirely different podcast or maybe two or three podcasts we can uh, discuss all of that. But just w in general, uh, how should patients or how should EMS providers approach those patients that they tell the right story, they look like they're having some sort of acute coronary syndrome. Uh, maybe the ECG looks a little funny, but isn't screaming STEMI not enough to activate the cath lab. Uh, how should we be addressing those patients? Well, again, I think your point's well made. I think we want to realize four things can confuse us a little bit of that. That would even include something as simple as a left bundle branch block in a setting of this type patient, sure. which, which would be treated as a STEMI otherwise. Ultimately, I think if that's the setting you're in clinically, uh, if your ECG is dynamic, for lack of a better term, with changing T waves or changing ST segments uh, or reciprocal changes, those are phone calls and ECGs that we want to see. We want to review those. And again, to the earlier point, is this guy is this guy coming in hot? And if he is, we're going to move sooner, much sooner than we would have later on someone like that. Uh, again, there's a fine line between sort of the NSTEMI and STEMI population based on kind of the continuum of, of the process of acute coronary syndromes. And at some point, that vessel will occlude. As a matter of fact, it would not be typically, uh, excuse me, atypical to see even the aspirin dose maybe allow some reperfusion of the coronary. So you'd say, well, maybe the ECG is improving a bit, but nonetheless, you have a diagnostic ECG, you have the clinical setting, you move forward to the cath lab with that and repair the artery. Excellent. So that's, that's a couple of great points that I want to emphasize. The first one, we talk about obtaining the ECG, I think something I forgot and we, we skipped over, but uh, I think it's important to obtain that ECG with the first set of vital signs and before you do any of that treatment because you, you said something as simple as aspirin or maybe that one dose of nitroglycerin can cause just enough reperfusion uh, to the myocardium that the ST segment elevation goes away and you get what you would think would be a normal ECG, but yes. that lesion is still there. So Because uh, once you get that that STEMI, you know, then they're going straight to the cath lab. Nothing you do after that is, is going to change that. So uh, you can catch some STEMIs that maybe otherwise wouldn't be there after your treatment, I think. Absolutely. Just as you wouldn't leave a trauma patient lying in the field to see what happens next, sure. you wouldn't leave a kind of the ultimate trauma to the heart in acute MI. You wouldn't leave it just sitting there to see what happens next. You'd, you'd progress right, right in the same motion you're discussing, which is the aspirin, and then rapid movement into the cath lab. And I think another thing that uh, how these patients are approached in the emergency department, if they, you know, if you go the other way, they tell the right story, they look like an ACS patient, but maybe they don't have that STEMI screaming at you on the uh, on the EKG, but the EKG looks a little questionable. A lot of times, uh, patients that have a blockage, those EKGs are dynamic. Uh, things will change over time, and one of the things they know that I know they do in the emergency department, if they have that funny looking ECG, is they'll they'll uh, repeat it every 10 minutes or 15 minutes or what have you. Uh, and I think that's something that we can do in the EMS setting is not that we're delaying transports. You wouldn't sit there for 20 minutes at the scene waiting for a second uh, second ECG. But if you obtain that first one with the first set of vital signs, it's going to take you five to 10 minutes to get the patient packaged into your ambulance and down on, the, on down the road. Uh, and then maybe another 10 minutes to transport. You can certainly uh, repeat that ECG as you're stopped at a light. Or even I'll do it sometimes as just as I'm 
uh, pulling into the uh, ambulance bay at the hospital just to get that final tracing to see is there something I can walk in with and hey I just just ran this and got a STEMI now because uh, you see those dynamic changes that can be indicative that uh, something's going on with their with their uh, coronary arteries. I think that's absolutely accurate and, and, and again you're hooked up you're in the back of the truck you're rolling on the road and evolving STEMI can be as you've seen a very dangerous and deadly situation. Yeah and these things can change over just the course of minutes as you said so it's really important as you said I, I like to leave those leave the leads in place uh, throughout the duration of the transport and I can I can look at them anytime if uh, if something changes with the patient or I just feel the need to uh, to do a repeat uh, tracing. Awesome. I think we've uh, hit all the topics that we need to. Uh, I really appreciate your time. I think this is a great initiative that the uh, AHA is uh, putting forth here and that uh, uh, yourself and, and many other uh, physicians and uh, EMS providers in the region are helping move forward and I'm excited about it. Uh, in, in light of the fact that so this uh, podcast is being released during uh, National EMS Week in the United States, so is there any just general message you'd like to give to uh, our EMS colleagues that are out there uh, working in the field? Yeah, of course. Just to thank you, A, for their time and commitment, and, and then B, for their collaboration, and, 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 and C, finally, for the dedication to the patients. Uh, I think as a team, we win this game. Uh, as a team, we become national leaders from, from, from coming into the game a little bit late, but nonetheless in the game now. And so we operate as a team. We communicate patients uh, uh, back and forth, and we and we really just discuss the data as, as it unfolds to make ourselves better every time we, we go out there. So just a huge thank you to those guys for doing what they do. Awesome. Well, thank you again. You've been very generous with your time, and uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning in. Thanks, Josh.